1: You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with L.D., Will the Thrill, and T.J. Two.
2: Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the life's careers and deaths of famous musicians. I'm your host, L.D., along with me for the ride, as always, is Will the
0: Thrill. Your third wheel saying greetings and salutations.
2: Oh, you've embraced it.
0: Yes, I have. And this tasty beverage.
2: Oh, that, that didn't sound like anything. Sorry to our listeners at home. You can that hear was, it? Uh, no, nuts. that was weak. No, that was weak.
0: Nothing. That yeah, was weak. Uh, nuts. Yeah, sorry. What are you drinking? Well, someone was kind enough to gift me a sampler of beer for Christmas. <laughs> someone, uh, I'm not naming names, but they may or may not be part of this podcast. Thank you very much. And I figured, you know what? It's October somewhere, so I opted for the Oktoberfest. It's,
2: okay,
3: <laughs> I'm sure uh, it is October. Actually, my is. my
2: personal favorite one that that TJ bought you was the "I made my family disappear" beer.
0: Oh, that one was good too. Ooh. It,
2: it, I just love the Home Alone reference. So
0: it that. wasn't. It, for a, uh, a nice kind of spicy winter ale, that one did the trick. That was awesome.
4: Yes, you you like the uh, Home Alone reference. Uh, Will like the 7.9% uh, A. <laughs> yes.
0: Sure. And afterwards, I thoroughly enjoyed the Home Alone reference. Yes.
2: And then we also have my brother from the exact same mother, Mr. TJ2, the deuce.
4: Did you hear that? This not is a, not a good day for opening beer. No, this is a, a terrible good. day for opening <laughs> beer.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, Enterprise. <clears throat> and go I ahead. have one
4: I believe is in your gift pack, Will. That would be the Seasick Crocodile.
0: No, that's not in there. No, I don't have that one. Oh, bummer. Huh. <laughs> Thanks.
4: <laughs> but I won't tell you that it's the, it is the most delicious beer that perhaps man has ever produced. Um, yeah, you might want to leave that part out. Yeah. It's the perfect balance of uh, everything, and um, not really, but um, it's good. It's a sour. It's it's so uh, tart and juicy that it almost doesn't taste like a beer.
2: I I might enjoy that if I liked beers.
4: It's very fruit juicy and very tart. It's it doesn't really that doesn't taste like beer at
2: All right. Well, um, guys, we just have two pieces of business to take care of. And uh, Will, why don't you take the, the helm of that?
0: Yeah. So sad passing, ladies and gentlemen, this week, we lost the one, the only... Anita Pointer, founder of the legendary Pointer Sisters out of Oakland, California. Anita was, of course, a key driver in that for one of the biggest acts in Motown of all time. I mean, we're talking some of the greatest songs ever, like Jump, Slow Hand, Fire, and LD, we talked about this. I'm so excited. One of the most secretly (laughs) filthy songs ever recorded. Oh, There's really? another use of it that we're not going to discuss. Right, I'm Eldie?
2: so excited. You know, I thought we. am so excited. We've we've gone over I'm this. I'm so
0: scared. I, I have a PowerPoint <laughs> about how much I detest that episode of Saved by the Bell. But anyway. Sadly, Anita Pointer has left the party. She was, uh, she passed in her home in California. She was surrounded by her family. The exact cause of death has not been released, but it is believed that unfortunately Anita had battled cancer for some time. And unfortunately, she would lose that battle on New Year's Eve, 2022. Anita Pointer left the party at the age of 74. So thanks for some great music, Anita.
2: Yeah. And uh, it was just a bad, bad week for amazing artists to leave the party. We also lost Fred White, who was a member of Earth, Wind, and Fire. And here's a really interesting fact not so much a fun fact, but. but Here's an interesting fact. Yeah. He was actually a a child. He was a child protege. He's a member of the Earth, Wind, and Fire Original Nine. And he he actually obtained gold records at the age of 16. Like, what were you doing at age 16? Not that. Yeah. So uh, he passed away at the age of 67. He was inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in the year 2000 as a member of Earth, Wind, and Fire. And they announced his death on Instagram on Sunday. So uh, like always, we send out our thoughts and our prayers uh, for their friends and their family. We know that both of them are massive losses in the musical industry and they will be missed.
4: Do you remember...
2: That's
0: like your song, LD, isn't it? That,
2: that is That literally yeah. my song because my birthday, because I know if it's the 21st night of September, uh, I'm very close. I'm eight days away from my birthday. I would also like to say at the top of the episode that this week we are tackling someone I'm pretty sure, number one, my brother is just going to check out of.
4: That's a big ride joke.
2: (laughs) It's fine. I have embraced it. I've learned to accept it. So I will say with this that uh, Stephen Sondheim died at the age of 91, which meant that he was born in the year 1930. So right up top, I'm just going to say this week will not include a reference to Manfred Mann's Earth Band. (laughs) (laughs) Tom? Oh, <laughs> so, so, with that non reference to the Manfred Mann's Earth Band, uh, let's roll that beautiful bean footage.
3: <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, I am Tom McGinnis, and that was your federally mandated Manfred Mann reference of the podcast. I hope you are satisfied. That's
2: just the greatest thing that exists. <laughs> There's nothing better.
4: It is. But if uh, we, you know, Am I the only one who poops around and wonders about things like, if Duke just ate pork and beans all the time? My God, I hope they kept him away from open flames. I don't know if you ever fed stuff like that to a dog.
2: Did that something happen hazardous. with Tucker or Gracie? Because I feel like I feel like Tucker puts more things in his mouth, but Gracie isn't smart enough to know the difference.
4: Right, and Gracie has uh, digestive issues, so uh, yeah, it's quite odiferous. <sighs> yeah, I mean. It it, sound, it it smells like if if a whale ate a landfill full of like rotting dead buzzards and then like pooped wow, <laughs> yeah, I mean, just just trash and dead birds and stuff. and you know, a whale eats it. what
0: ok, Everything from Sondheim
2: to whale poop, folks we're here for you. we co- we got you covered, <laughs> yeah. guys. um. All
3: right. So yeah. So
4: you know. So you know. So trash and rancid meat and whale doo doo. I mean, that's pretty much where where it what it smells like. That's a rough approximation of Gracie eating anything that isn't the specialty uh, sensitive stomach food that she eats.
2: All right. So let's get started with Steven Sondheim, part mm. one.
4: Yeah. Yeah. But you know, Tucker one time <laughs> ate a rug and pooped it out. All right. I was walking him and he pooped. And uh, it looked weird. And I looked at it and I was like, oh, that's that rug that uh, Ashley said you ate. But there was a string that was still hanging out of his butt.
2: Stephen Joshua Sondheim was born (laughs) in New York City. So I pulled
4: on it and it was like, it was like the biggest gracious to see and say ever.
2: He was born on March 22nd,
4: 1930.
0: Oh
2: my goodness. (laughs) (sighs) All right. So here we go. Stephen Joshua Sondheim. Uh, He was born in New York City on March 22nd, 1930 to Father Herbert Sondheim, who was a successful dress manufacturer, and his mother, Janet Fox, a fashion designer. And she will go by the name Foxy, so if you hear me refer to her as Foxy, that's who I'm talking about, his mom. uh, They were living in a hotel at the time, and that's not because they didn't have the means to have a place to live, it was just they were getting ready to move. Now, as far as marriage goes, uh, Stephen saw that his father had probably married his mother for kind of practical reasons. Quote, I think, this is my opinion, that it was a bargain. I think my mother was in love with my father, but he wasn't in love with her, but he needed a designer.
0: (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Marriage uh, of convenience.
2: (laughs) Who marries somebody because he's like, I'm a dress manufacturer and I need a designer. I'm going to marry you.
0: It's Uh, drawn up in a business plan. Who knows?
2: Yeah. So Foxy, as she was called, had the ability to blurt out every single thought that ever came into her head, good or bad, without even expressing foresight. Uh, And it's thought that maybe Stephen's father had thought that that might be a pretty, you know, attractive quality, at least at first. It might have been because she was able to express things that he was too meek to say. And she had an act for gathering people around her, like uh, Susan Blanchard. Who was Oscar Hammerstein's stepdaughter. The author, Dominic Dunn, said that it was true that she could be cutting, but she was also very funny. She could be charming and she loved parties and fashion designers had to be relentless social climbers in those days. Like even the Sears catalog at the time was using people like Joan Marsh and Fay Ray to promote gowns. And, you know, every fashion house needed an entourage of actresses that were film stars at the time. And Foxy had befriended a lot of stars like Colleen Moore, Galinda Farrell, and Helen Kane. Now I say this is because that she decided that the San Rio complex was the kind of place that she wanted to live, and it was a new apartment complex that was to occupy the whole block between West Seventy Fourth and West Seventy Fifth Street. And it, it you might know where this is well, but it kind of overlooked the park.
0: So You're talking about Central Park.
2: Yes. Uh, it had been new since 1928 since a uh, building syndicate had announced plans to buy the hotel of the same name on that site and erect this splendid edifice of 27 floors. And at the time, it would have been one of the tallest apartment buildings in the city. And so that's where they wanted to live. And Stephen was born while they were waiting to take possession of their living spaces. As a mother, Foxy sort of took on a progressive stance that you would think that someone who had to be like 10 steps ahead of fashion and fads like foxy was so she would get news from like paris that children should be sun-kissed so she would strip steven down and just like parade him around town in his uh, carriage just totally oh, naked so wow. he get yeah so um she did
0: that till he was 38 <laughs>
2: Yeah, so uh, he also had a nurse, uh, Mrs. Daly, who he doesn't remember at the time, uh, but there are a lot of photos with the two of them together, which this is going to sound weird, but that becomes sort of a trend in his life. So, having a nurse? Not having a nurse, but having...
4: Being s- ridden around naked in a baby carriage?
2: <laughs> having someone else sort of be the mother or father that he needed.
0: Ah, okay.
2: Yeah. Uh, at the age of four, he was enrolled in pre-kindergarten classes and the school was chosen for him, and it was 12 blocks to the south of Central Park West. The the school was founded by Felix Adler. And I'm wondering, I should have looked this up. I'm wondering if he's related to Lou Adler. Well,
0: there's two name. Lou Adlers, like the recruiting Lou Adler, and then there's the entertainment Lou Adler.
2: I'm thinking uh, I'm thinking entertainment Lou Adler. Okay.
0: Because yeah. they're both very prominent for different reasons.
2: Yeah, but who do you think it is?
0: It could be either at this point. (laughs) They're both from New York. (laughs) Fair. yeah. Uh,
2: Well, well, it was founded by Felix, and that was a 19th century social reformer who had become life as a rabbi student, but who had decided that religion was inadequate to deal with the problems of the modern world. Now, I bring up the school that seems to have turned his back on religion because they were Jewish. The Sondheims were Jewish. And it's going to be really interesting because uh, Stephen actually brings up a point where he dealt with anti-Semitism. But Stephen never received any pressure in his life to join the church, and he didn't even have a bar mitzvah when he became of age. So he knew nothing about the observances of the Jewish calendar, and he didn't even enter a synagogue until he was 19 years old.
0: Well, that's interesting because isn't that area a predominantly, or at least wasn't a predominantly Jewish community?
2: Well, you also have to think, if he's for... That's 1934,
0: so, you know. Yeah, the way events would play out would mean there'd be, a, I think, a larger influx of Jewish population in the next decade or so,
2: yeah. Yep. He was a really smart kid because he went to Miss Mabel Walker's pre-kindergarten class, and then he skipped kindergarten and entered the first grade in 1935 at the age of five, which was taught by Mrs. Esther Burnham. And he took second grade with uh, Mrs. Miriam Stevens and third grade with Lewis Wells. He's got like the most logged information about his growing up that I've had with anybody other than Michael Jackson.
0: Yeah, sometimes it's very slapdash. This is down to the person. Mrs. Mabel.
2: I think we had, uh, I I think I remember my third grade teacher, which was Miss Renee. Is that right, T? Because we had the same third grade teacher.
3: No, who, who was my
2: third
4: grade it? teacher was Miss Shannon.
2: That's who I had. Now, that's where we learned the states, right?
4: Uh, that's where the, the counties, the county, the South yes. Carolina County song. Yes, yes. third grade. That, because because that was compulsory. You couldn't graduate if you couldn't sing the 46 South Carolina counties in alphabetical order to the tune of Yankee Doodle. And then you think I'm kidding, and I am not.
2: Nope. Maybe we'll post that on our, uh, our TikTok.
4: I think we've done that before. We did that one time, didn't
2: we? We we posted on Facebook years ago and then mom reposted it. So I might have to try to find it again. But yeah, we we you can't graduate till you can do that. But and then I think in my seventh grade I had Miss Hilton and Miss Welton. And I was like, I hated them. I hated them so much. Like now as an adult, I could say that. They were bitches.
4: (laughs) I still carry anger for them. Well, I mean, I remember. Most of my teachers up to about fifth grade by name, and then you start having different teachers for every subject. It gets a little harder, but see, first I had Miss Steele, then I had Miss Westsinger, then I had Miss Shannon, then I had Miss Knox, and um, up until uh, through Miss Knox, they could still whip kids like teachers could. Mm-hmm. And Miss um, Steele had um, you know the little paddle ball thing, the little oh, rubber band yeah. of the ball, and you she had like seven of those duct taped together.
2: Oh God. Um, I oh, and
4: she she loved doling out beatings.
2: Yep. I mean, I still have scars on my hand, my left hand, because I'm supposed to be left handed, but that was beat out of me by my teachers. <laughs> um, because being left handed is evil, right? Back to Stephen. He was pretty much a normal kid who would look out for his friends Henry and Felicia Steiner, who lived a few floors below him at 146 Central Park West. Their parents, uh, were. Harold Steiner and I wrote down the word well as the wife's name and that is not right because I used talk to text but anyway uh they were friends and the Sondheims they would play the whole family got together with the other family so the Steiners and the Sondheims would hang out and so they would play games and, and hang out in the apartment or they'd play basketball in the street or stickball or whatever you did in the 30s. I don't know. Six o'clock was time, and Sondheim would listen to the radio until his father got home from work. And he doesn't really have a memory of his mother during these days. He said, my father would come into my bedroom every night and often hold out his hand and I would touch his hand and I might get a quarter out of it or something like that. They were little bribes.
4: Hey, so question: We're talking what late thirties at this point?
2: Maybe early forties, maybe thirty-six.
4: Okay, 36. so we're talking mid late thirties. Did uh, his did his parents do the trick where they took the little radio speaker and sat it in a bowl like our grandma did?
2: I doubt it. It was probably this massive, like, because music is going to be a huge thing in Stephen's life. His father encourages it, so I assume that they would have like. I'm actually going to talk about something that he has, which is really friggin' cool. Like so cool that I had to call Will up here to like watch a video of it.
4: A lot of older radios, you know, the the there was the speaker was attached to the to the radio unit by a little wire. And it was only about the size of a quarter, right? But it was so, but to get amplification, you would take it and you would sit it in a bowl.
2: I don't think that they would have to do that because remember This would we this were also, also works,
4: by the way, if you're listening to something on your cell phone.
2: Yeah, put it in a sit plastic a speaker cup.
4: side down in a bowl, trust yep. me.
2: Yep. Yep. I think, though, that uh, Sondheim was rich enough to have actual speakers on Saturday. He spent time at something called Group, which was a basically a way for parents to get rid of their kids. And that would either be Central Park, which is in Manhattan, or it would take place in Van Cortlandt Park in the Bronx. And I think we just passed Van Cortlandt when we went to uh, New York, didn't we, Will?
0: Van Cortlandt Park? Yeah. Yeah, that was um, coming back from the Bronx, I believe.
2: Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. I think, I think we we I think it was a stop on the, the train that we saw. We went up to St. Annie, yeah. Yeah. So it was mostly made up of Jewish kids from the west side. It started at nine in the morning and ended at six. And the kids would play games and just do like kids stuff. And, and that was pretty much his uh, weekend. I mean, Sunday mornings would be spent with his parents having breakfast. And in the afternoon, if you know there wasn't group on Saturday, because group was on Saturday. His father might take him to a football game or a baseball game or uh, the polo grounds or even to Yankee Stadium. And he actually really enjoyed school at the time. And he said the reason why he loved school was because he loved the teachers. And he was sort of being raised by an absent mother. When he was sick, his mom's cousin Peggy would leave her job to sit with him and play games. And his mother never would. He was also. It also didn't help that he had asthma and he was also on the slider side. So he would go to camp during the summer and he'd have to be part of what was called the Milk Squad, which was made up of kids who needed extra nutrition. And I bring that up later because uh, it will disqualify him for military service, which, you know, in like about four years is going to become a thing. Oh, yeah. So, of course, they're not going to send a, you know, even at the latest, they're not going to send a 14-year-off to Germany or to Japan. So I'm just bringing it up because he does try to... Swing into military service later. Sondheim learned to read really early. He remembered in those days, children at the ethical cultural school were taught to sound out words by syllables, a method that he mastered by the age of five. Okay, five. Should you be... Is that normal? Like, I don't have kids. Is that normal? But, But he used to be able to stand in front of his first grade class reading the New York Times.
0: At five.
2: (laughs) At five, he was reading the New York Times.
0: Unbelievable.
2: Thanks to this method, he could actually pronounce words that it shouldn't have been possible for a five-year-old to know. But even before he could read, he had mastered the ability to identify records simply by recognizing the patterns the words made out on the spine. His parents would trot him out into the evening and demonstrate this parlor trick before uh, all the guests at his parties. So, you know, they have these, like, swanky parties and, like, All I can imagine is like that scene in The Sound of Music where they like drag the kids out and make them sing. And then they're like, all right, go to bed. The parents need to drink. And I'm pretty sure your dad needs to have sex with that nanny. Anyway, uh, at this time, he became fascinated. And this is what I was talking about. He became fascinated by a phonograph player that at the time had been called Cape Heart. Now, what made this so interesting is that it played both sides of the record the famous Cape Hart Deluxe home radio photographs of the 1930s and the 40s. And those, those instruments had this wonderful record-changing design by Ralph Irby. And this, you didn't have anything like this at the time. It could play 10 and 12-inch records intermixed. So you can throw a 10-inch, a 12-inch, 10-inch, 10 10-inch, 10 12 into the pile and it would play both of them but it would also turn each record over. So it would it would play side A, and then it would flip it over, play side B. And then once that was done, there's some sort of intuition in it that it knew that this had played both sides of the record. So it would actually lift it up kind of like a forklift, flip it to the top of the pile, and then the machine would kick it out a new record on the bottom. Yeah,
0: you showed that to me. But it would, in
4: fact, play that big 10-inch.
2: Yes. Yes. Figured it wouldn't take long. Yep. Yep. Not not That's yet. Not for not 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 for another 40 years. Yeah, it's a song by Aerosmith.
4: Uh-huh.
2: Yeah. Why are you acting like I don't know what a big 10 inch is?
4: Well, I mean, have you
2: met my husband? Hell.
4: Woo!
2: <laughs> have I been drinking? <sighs>
4: Yeah, <laughs> and maybe if you've been to like a barnyard, you'd be familiar with one or something. I don't know. It's a lot going on. All Is right. this
2: thing on? Is <laughs> this, <laughs> this thing on? He remembers listening to an old record of Fats Waller singing Ain't Mr. <laughs> he would lie on the floor and listen to music, and he watched the K part turn the records over and over. They were always listening to show tunes in their house because his father had a pension for playing the piano, and that was his favorite form of recreation. He was entirely self-taught and mastered seven or eight basic chords, which worked perfectly well for the most popular tunes. Less well for composers who used more inventive harmonies, should we say. So maybe because Herbert had love for the instrument, he started taking piano lessons from about the age of seven, studying with a Miss Moss who had a small studio on West 84th Street, just off Central Park West. My father would hoist me onto the piano bench and put my hands on his hands, and he'd play the melody over the top. And that's what led to a piano lesson. At the end of each year, we would have to give a recital for all the little kids, and I felt like I had a very fleet right hand, so some of the first pieces I would play would be like Flight of the Bumblebee. His mother and father would actually take him out of bed at cocktail hour if they had clients and would drag him out in his pajamas to play Flight of the Bumblebee. He took lessons for about two years and doesn't remember why he stopped, but one of his biggest complaints was that his right hand was very fast and very fleeting, and his left hand was really lumpy and heavy. Funny enough, he doesn't actually recall having any marked interest in music at this age. He had no interest in arts or poetry, and his inability to conjure up any visual images remains striking. Once he was asked to describe his mother and he said, just let me show you a picture of her. <laughs> he was actually more interested in how things work. Once he took a slot machine apart, it took him three days because it had jammed. So he wanted to solve this puzzle. And once he was asking an interview what he would have done if he hadn't become the composer that he was, and he said he would have loved to have been a teacher. So at the age of six, he saw his first live theater, an operetta called the White Horse Inn. Now, I'd play it here, but I would rather keep TJ as a host, so I won't be playing anything from it. Because, number one, I do believe it's in Italian, and number two, it's in Italian.
4: I'm cooking a pizza. There it
2: is. is. I'm so sorry to the entire country of Italy. Um, Mamma mia! And I tried, but I couldn't find a complete recording. But what I heard, it was beautiful. You remember seeing the boys from Syracuse, which would open on Broadway late fall of 1938. He also met the great man himself, which I'm talking about Oscar Hammerstein, but remembers nothing about it because that's he. That's the first time he ever met Oscar Hammerstein was in 1938, and to this day he did not remember actually meeting him that first time. Really? Uh, I mean, he was eight. I've been in the industry since I was four. And I don't remember ever meeting Charlton Heston. Do you remember meeting Charlton Heston, T? I do. How old are you?
4: I'm four years and 10 months older than you are.
2: I know, but when was Chiefs?
4: I was eight, I think, at the time. Yeah. So yeah, he, I remember it, yeah. yeah. Him and Billy J. Williams and uh, Brad Collins and...
2: And that baseball that well, you lost? We met
4: John Goodman, but it's, I, I don't remember that, but mainly because I didn't know who he was at the time. John Goodman? Yeah, he was in Chiefs, too. Mm-hmm.
2: And if you're wondering, Chiefs was this movie that was actually filmed in our hometown in the 80s, and our mom was the choreographer.
4: She was, and was in several scenes. Yeah.
2: And they used my father's taxidermy shop for the police station. And I was five, so I don't Remember meeting any of these people, but there's photographic evidence that I did. So, I mean, like, I don't actually remember what I ate for lunch yesterday, probably nothing, but he doesn't remember meeting Oscar Hammerstein. It's
4: very odd, though, that I mean, that that somebody that would, I would assume, have been a big inspiration and that was in the same field and all that stuff. It sounds like that would stick with
0: you, but, but that, was, that was my line of thinking, But he was you know? an eight,
2: yeah. he didn't have a field. He was worried about reading the New York Times and being grumpy at his left hand. Like, that's what he had to worry about. And don't worry, he meets Oscar later. Again, he'll meet Oscar again. So uh, he was moved to the ethical culture campus in Riverdale, which is just a bus ride away from the Central Park area when he was in the fourth grade. Uh, What he remembers the most about that time was the school was actually, and I'm going to point out, He went to this in fourth grade. He's doing this in fourth grade. What he remembers the most is that they were teaching him to be financially responsible. All the kids were issued checkbooks, and then you had to go to the canteen and make out a check for five cents for a pack of gum or something. You had a bank account of, say, like $1.50, and you had the balance of your account. And so at the end of the week, you would have to balance your checkbook in the fourth grade. (laughs) And he loved it. He was so good at it. And they don't even teach you, they don't teach you that now, much less in the fourth grade. Do you, do you ever remember that class? Maybe that's why
4: everybody's in debt now.
2: Probably. I do remember when, once I moved to Richard Wynn Academy, I think my teacher, Miss Nick taught us how to write a check and balance a checkbook in our humanities class, because that was like everything's kind of class.
0: I think there's, like, one class of that in, like, middle school, but then never again.
2: Yeah. No, I mean, in my economics class, we watched Twister, so. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yep.
4: Once in the gym class when I was in ninth grade, we watched Road Isles.
2: Are you kidding?
0: Not The of cinematic achievement.
2: I watched that show for, like, six minutes, and there were 13 explosions. <laughs>
0: <laughs> to quote I mean, Roger it was better than
4: Degrassi Junior High, which we watched in social studies. <laughs>
2: Well, we also watched really old episodes of the Bloodhound Gang. Okay. So he was reflecting on his life in a book that is the main source of this podcast called Stephen Sondheim, A Life. He says, I don't remember my mom at all during those years. I don't think she was around. I don't think she cared. I think that my father wanted to share things with me. And I think that my mom did not. I have no memory of my mother doing anything with me. And my father was only spending time with me occasionally on Sundays. He would take me to a ball game or something. Otherwise, I was what they would call an institutionalized child, meaning that I have no contact with any kinds of friends or family. You have everything but human contact. No brothers, no sisters, no parents, and yet plenty to eat. And you had friends to play with and a warm bed and a radio, you know. So basically, he was what we call, I think, a latchkey kid now. I think so, yeah. And then one night when he was 10, his whole world came apart. He was awakened by the sounds of sobbing coming from his mother's room, which is telling because if his mom has a room and his father has a room, they don't have a room together. He said it was a rainy night and he woke suddenly to a voice sobbing loudly, incessantly, a frightened voice, a lonely voice. It was his mother. He went into the bedroom and cried all night. At some point during that day, Herbert Sottenheim had written a note, packed up his clothes and walked out.
0: Hey, LD, sorry to jump in here, but we do have to take a short break for those nice people who are kindly enough to sponsor these episodes.
1: Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons,
3: We're back. Excellent.
2: Let's jump back into the life of Stephen Sondheim. The particular reason for him walking out was that he had met a woman named Alicia. I'm going to say there's an a, a accent over her name, and I'm going to say it like Moira Rose, Bebe." <laughs> I'm going to say it like that because it made Will snicker. You're going
4: to say it like that because you don't speak Spanish very well.
0: <laughs> but no, there's it, a joke there.
2: <laughs> yes, there's a joke there. She was tall. She was blonde. And she was... <gasps> Catholic. And Stephen Sondheim described their relationship as the movie Love Affair. They decided that they wouldn't do anything, but they would see each other in six months and see whether or not they wanted to still see each other. So they let six months go by. And then they decided that they wanted to see each other. So she left her husband. And even though she was Catholic, he left Foxy. So And remember, the reason why I'm bringing up the whole Catholic thing was because at the time, you did not get divorced if you're Catholic. You Correct. stayed married. It was till death do you part.
0: And
4: and honestly, probably amongst their family, if they were very devout, their relationship was probably frowned upon on both sides at that time.
2: Yeah, exactly. Because I, I don't know if we've like, you know, floated away from that, but it seems like it doesn't really matter anymore what your religious affiliation is if you love somebody. And I kind of dig that. But, you know. That's probably that's probably going to be the statement that gets us hate letters. <laughs> Just saying that out loud, that's probably going to be what people get mad at me but for.
4: Yeah, yeah, 1930s, I mean, 90 years ago, that would have been a much bigger deal.
2: Exactly. This was a complete upheaval in Stephen's life. One day, he found his parents sitting on the couch in their apartment discussing the future. They had decided that he was going to go to military school. And although this might bother some kids, he actually loved it because he knew where he was going to be at 903 and 958 and 1250. And he needed that kind of structure so that he didn't feel like his life was in chaos. He would spend two years there from 1940 to 1942. And other than the structure and the comfort that military school gave him, Stephen doesn't really remember a whole lot from that time.
4: Can I ask a very serious question, actually? Yes. There's a lot of things that you're not saying he doesn't really remember. He doesn't really remember. He doesn't remember. It was were were these recollections collected like much later in life when maybe his memory wasn't quite what it had been, or something?
2: I want to say yes. Specifically, I mean, I just
4: that's. It seems like if I was in military school for two years, I think I'd remember that. <laughs> you know.
2: Also, he he's going much faster than other people because he he was there for he went in there for sixth grade and then he skipped the seventh grade, going straight into the eighth grade. So he will have skipped two grades at this point. So he's still the youngest kid in the class. So try to recall something from when you were eight, like a specific memory. Can you do it?
4: Uh, When I was eight? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I can. Because that's when I was in third grade.
2: Okay. So I
4: dressed up like Orville Wright for a book fair.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I I, I think I recall one or two things from when I was eight, because that was 1988. And so it's more attached to, like, movies and music and things like that. So, like, I think, like, the seminal year for me was, like, 1997. Like, that's the point where things sort of become clearer for me. So I think, yeah, if you're not And someone-
4: I, was, I remember I was right behind uh, a girl named... And my, our picture was uh, featured in the newspaper, for which I now work. <laughs> a bunch of us that were... I guess, we had really good costumes. I was right behind a girl named Laurie with whom I was smitten, but for <laughs> whom my affections were unrequited.
2: Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I think a lot of this information comes from photos or family friends that are telling him these stories or documentation, because I feel like unless you come from a family like the Jacksons, if you're not already famous, what's the point? of keeping a meticulous and detailed journal. And I'm not saying that makes him any less important, but I'm just saying, like, his parents even aren't around for him most of the time. And so recalling this stuff later might be a little bit more difficult because I don't think it's a memory thing because he's he's oh, smart as a whip. Like, he, you'll see, like, in the last episode, I'll actually talk about something that he
4: did. Oh, he would have remembered being... Uh, dressed up like Orville Wright standing behind Laurie who was dressed up like Laurie Engels Wilder, I assure you. <laughs> Don't forget that.
2: Well, you'll always have that memory, Travis.
4: And that's the only one.
2: <laughs> See, there you go.
4: That's the only one of her. That's pretty much it. That's closest as I'd ever got.
2: So like I was saying, you know, if you have photographs of this stuff, it's sort of easy to at least remember or sort of build a story around it. There are a couple photographs of him at the military school, and it's dressed like he said, like a hotel page boy, and that is absolutely hundred percent true <laughs> because I've seen this photo, and it looks like if you give him five dollars, he'll take your bags up to your room. It's precious, it's and if I if I can post those pictures, if I can figure out our scanner, I will try to scan that photo so you guys can see it because it's adorable. It's so cute. Even in the short time that he was there, what he accomplished while he was there, is a pretty long list. And this is going to be kind of like uh, the the theme of this podcast is complete overachiever in everything he does because he got his swimming certificate, a junior life-saving emblem, an archery championship. He was in the Glee Club, the Dramatic Club, the Players Club, and he was on the basketball team. And his nickname was Little Sonny. And that summer, he appeared as Reckless Richard, the hero of a melodrama, Called Out in the Cold, which was a Mary Livingston skit about Jack Benny, and he was the editor of the weekly newspaper. To all appearances, he was making a surprisingly easy adjustment to the upheaval in his life, and I I also believe that that's going to track as well. In the summer of 1941, he was living in the Hotel Pierre in New York with his mom, and his father had left his mom, and she had lost her job because remember she was working for him because she was the the dress designer. He was the manufacturer. She went to work for Hattie Carnegie. That should be a, was it Carnegie or Carnegie? Which do you prefer?
0: I've heard both.
2: I've heard both. You want to go with yeah. the school, like the school name Carnegie? Carnegie, I think yeah. Let's go. Let's go Hattie Carnegie because I don't think I say her name again. But sometime after that, she started her own dress business. See, ta-da but that didn't put her in direct contact with her husband since she specialized in made-to-order things. She called her company Foxy Inc. And if if you say Foxy Lady is not stuck in your head right now, you are a liar. It has been since the start of the episode, to be
4: fair. Yeah, pretty much. I've just been waiting for the right time to drop it in, but uh, that's fine.
2: <laughs> okay, here's something interesting. Did you guys know to get a divorce in New York in the 30s and the 40s was extremely hard? So Herbert and Alicia immediately went down to Mexico and obtained a divorce there. It's technically not recognized in the state of New York. There's something called the White Slave Traffic Act, which is also known as the Mann Act, which had been passed at the turn of the century as part of the international efforts to suppress worldwide trade in prostitution. So anyone who took a woman across state lines, as Herbert did every time he and Alicia drove to their Fifth Avenue apartment from their home in Stamford, Connecticut, could be placed in an embarrassing position if charges were brought up. You know what I'm saying? Because it's supposed to be, you know, it's it's keeping people safe, saucy stuff. Ah. Perhaps this is why a legal separation was agreed upon in the autumn of 1941, and the custody of Stephen was granted to Foxy, and that's because... Uh, Alicia was considered to be, in 1941, an immoral woman huh. because, you know, she, quote, unquote, was a homewrecker.
0: Immoral, you said.
2: Yes. She was an immoral woman. That's why his father wasn't granted custody, because she was an immoral woman. I mean, I, I get it. At this time, I'd be clutching my pearls, too, probably. But now it's just like, man, whatever. And in 1943, Foxy had a new reason to be super pissed off because, after believing that she could not have children, Alicia discovered that she was pregnant. And womp, after an, yeah, after an attempt to legitimize their relationship, <laughs> I have the best talk to text sentence I think. In an attempt to legitimize their relationships, preverts, <laughs> and that was Pre-fert.
4: it. Well, I mean, you know, the moral... it says preverts,
2: We're, yeah. Preverts and she were married in the registry. <laughs> I didn't think it was supposed to be Herbert.
0: <laughs> you have to go with Herbert. He's a prevert.
2: He's a prevert. So, so they went to the registry office in Stamford, Connecticut, and Alicia and Herbert got married, and their son was born in the autumn of that year. So that was nineteen forty-three. Their second son, Walter, was born in February of 1946. Finally, after two kids and years apart, Herbert was granted a divorce from Foxy by the state of New York. And presumably, by then, Alicia had also gotten hers, so now their marriage should be completely legally binding. And it is a sad note because Foxy blamed her son for the failure of her marriage. So one night when Joan Barnett went to act as a babysitter and found Stephen pouring drinks for his mother, there was a friend there at the apartment, Jamie Hammerstein, then called Jimmy. The boys wanted to go to a shooting gallery on Broadway, but their babysitter did not think that was a really good idea. So Stephen asked if she would like to see a new hit musical by Rogers and Hammerstein called Oklahoma. Oh,
0: (laughs) jeez. I laughed because of our our friend Shane reaction.
2: Yep. So he rang up his friend, Oki which uh, was Jimmy's father, like Oscar Hammerstein.
0: The, Oh,
2: yeah. They got standing room tickets and off they went. Foxy had become friendly with the Hammerstein to uh, having lunch with Oscar's wife, Dorothy, who happened to be an interior decorator. And they started their friendship off in like 1940. And the two moms got along really well and the sons, who were a year apart in age, had discovered a mutual passion for Monopoly and other games that they often played together. Jamie recalls his parents moving to Highland Farms just outside Doylestown in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which, by the way, hey, Pennsylvania. Man. You're not a fan, you know. I mean, don't say that on the podcast.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But we drove through there and had a negative experience.
2: I mean, it's just so much traffic and not a lot there. Shortly after, in June of 1942... Stephen came for a visit. Uh, he was supposed to go off for camp for a summer, but he had such a good time. He went to his mom and said, do I have to go to camp? And his mom canceled it, and he got to go to Jamie's house instead. So Stephen described it as infiltrating the house. <laughs> Jamie said he soon established himself as a relative. If Susan and I would come into the house, we'd ask, where's Stephen? Soon after Herbert divorced Foxy, they had a financial settlement and she bought a farm of her own in Bucks County, which was on the opposite side of Doylestown, just four miles away from the Hammersteins. She called the property Fox Hill Farms and leased out her land to local farmers to grow alfalfa, which is kind of cool. So during this time, Stephen wasn't being treated very well by his mother. In fact, it seems as she saw him as a burden, which is seemingly no different than she saw him before. So what would happen is he would stay at Fox Hollow during the week, and then during the weekends, he'd go hang out at the Hammersteins. When Oscar first met Stephen, he had not yet launched his favorite series of musicals in collaboration with Richard Rogers yet. He was about to begin his first of this series because he was working on Oklahoma. At that point, Hammerstein was known for a romantic floral kind of theater, more opera or operetta than musical comedy. Richard Rogers wrote since he had worked with Rodolph. Oh, the, I am gonna butcher this name. <laughs> Frem. F-I. Sorry, F-R-I-M-L. Fremel and
0: F-R-I-M-L?
2: Yes. And Sigmund well,
0: Give it a try Romberg, with some Gusto.
2: Fremil. Fremil. Fremel. And, like to go, go. and <laughs> bravo. And Sigmund Romberg. But he was also responsible, along with Jerome Kerm, for Showboat in 1927, a work that Rogers very much admired. Hammerstein had not had a major hit on Broadway for almost a decade. Oscar, who had lost his parents at a very early age, losing his mother when he was 15 and his father when he was 19, related to Sondheim's plight. It was a natural mentoring relationship. It was also the luckiest break in Sondheim's life to that point, and Oscar had a twisted sense of humor and his idea of fun would be to trip his kids with a branch just as they were learning to ice skate.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a scamp.
2: <laughs> uh, bone fragments. Uh, <laughs> now, he was extremely sweet and kind on one hand. Because words were his main talent, he could cut you down in a very abrupt way. Unexpected significant moments, Sondheim wrote later, which happened entirely by chance, Life kept surprising and sometimes changing its direction permanently. Moving to Bucks County led to my meeting Oscar and finding a channel into the work that I was meant to do. Sondheim always pointed out that Hammerstein's force of personality that figured into his eventual vocation, I was always interested in imitating Oscar. If he had been an archaeologist, I would have been an archaeologist. So literally, he just saw him as a mentor. It did not matter what he did. He just respected him and loved him so much that no matter what Oscar was, he would have been the same. So leading more to the idea that Oscar was quickly becoming Stephen's mentor, he taught him bridge and a genteel form of anagrams and backyard croquet. The whole idea of serious croquet is that it's a team. It's two against two and its strategy is as important as the shots. So what happens when you shoot, you could have a conversation for 45 minutes and then you shoot and then confer again. It's a very serious game and it's more like military maneuvers than a fun afternoon game. By the time Stephen arrived at George School, he was two grades ahead of his contemporaries. And at the time, all he really wanted to do was just be accepted. So he was never boastful about his good grades because he was precocious and some people didn't like that during this time he actually had to change the way he spoke because his mom would actually take on the british pronunciations of words like using the double s sounds in tissue uh instead of tissue instead of ish for instance better example would probably be that um he would just drop the g at the endings of anything so he'd say i'm going instead of i'm going and Strictly to think that people thought that he was better than anybody else. That's why he did it. He just didn't want to seem presumptuous. So he's trying to kind of fade into the background. At school, his favorite teacher would be Lucille Pollock, who taught Latin. Because, of course, he's learning Latin. Why wouldn't he? Yeah, overachiever. He actually started learning Latin in military school because he had to skip the seventh grade. Because remember, he only went to the sixth and the eighth grade. He didn't go to the seventh grade. He missed some of the basic lessons. And so he picked it up and then he quickly finished a four year course in two years because, of course, he did. I'm lucky I can do any kind of math. Now, during this time, Stephen did a lot of theater. He was way too small at this time to play any leading roles. But he worked on Day and Barry, a comedy called Alice, Sit by the Fire, and he got mentioned in the school newspaper. He was also given an early example of the importance of learning how to improvise when he appeared in a one-act play called Aria the Capo. He was playing one of the Shepherds, and during the dress rehearsal, another shepherd came crashing out of his chair, fell to the floor, and... That had not been rehearsed. Stephen not knowing how to respond, being brand new to this business, was absolutely paralyzed. It was then that this gentleman known as Uncle Jack came onto the stage, carried the boy out. Comes out that kid had an epileptic fit. Oh, wow. Yeah, but she just got to roll with it. Oklahoma, which was Oscar Hammerstein's famous collaboration of 1943, which Richard Rogers was speaking on the particular evolution of the opening song, Oh, what a beautiful warning, which by the way, I know we make fun of Oklahoma a lot. It's actually a really pretty song.
0: (laughs) I don't think so.
2: I don't even know what Oklahoma is about. I'm assuming the corn. He was talking about the lyrics of that song. And in an essay on notes on lyrics, Hammerstein wrote that in 1949, the authors had said something about turning Green Grow the Lilacs, which is a play by Lynn Riggs, into a musical, but they immediately ran into difficulties. The play opens up with a quiet strolling scene. This woman is churning butter outside of a farmhouse in the early morning, but no musical could do that at the time. Tradition dictated that with every musical, it should begin with a chorus line of pretty girls. And what do you substitute that with? A quilting bee or a strawberry festival? They They stared at each other and they weren't able to think of anything like that. and then they, they finally made the decision. They would begin their story where it needed to begin. And they realized that such course it was an er- experimental, amounting to almost a breach of an implied contract within a musical comedy audience. So they said, "Okay, you know what? To hell with it. We're not going to do this chorus line. We're going to do it this way." Once they made that decision, everything seemed to work, and they had this inner confidence that people would adopt that direction if they they made it an honest approach. There would be the farmhouse. There would be a woman turning butter. But then, of course, there would be the cowboy singing offstage. Oscar read the description of the opening scene, and it seemed like some of the images, like the blades of uh, corn and the, the streams of gold and the, the tone over the whole scene was too good to waste on just stage direction. He would have to cooperate those ideas into his song. He also remembers that moment on his own portion of Pennsylvania when he had watched a herd of motionless cows On a hillside, which were some distance away, and they had led to a quatrain about the cows on the hill are still as grass. A verse that he recalled when he wrote the cowboy song. So he took an image of something that he remembered while living in Pennsylvania and used that in a song which is now iconic. So the words and the music are now so universally familiar that it's hard to remember. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Signaled the beginning of a completely new approach to musical theater. Can I talk about that for just a second? Because it was something that was so... I don't guess
4: we can stop you.
2: (laughs) It was just so revolutionary. It's kind of like, well, now it's just Oklahoma, you know? It's Oklahoma, oh, they did this. But think about the movie Citizen Kane. We now look at it as like, oh yeah, it's Citizen Kane. It's supposed to be one of the greatest films of all time. We don't have that context of watching Citizen Kane when it first came out. Nobody was putting the cameras in the floor, and shooting up. Nobody was using super long lenses. These were all things that, that didn't really exist. So when Orson Welles created this movie, he was breaking all the rules, and people loved it. So now we look at it like, oh, it's Citizen Kane, but at the time, it was this massive departure from what people were used to.
0: Yeah, you have to look at everything else that was going on. You know, what other musicals were out there? What was theater like in New York at that time? You know?
2: Yeah. And this was something completely different. So he is, he's breaking from the norm. You can see why I think Stephen kind of got his pension for breaking the rules is because his mentor broke the rules. So by the time of the senior class play in early 1946, Stephen was almost 16, almost 16. Senior class. He's 15 years old. And he was tall enough to play some of the leading roles. He was cast as Charles in Noel Coward's Blythe Spirit, wearing a blatantly artificial mustache. I can only assume that it was one of those, like, ones that you see people wearing at Halloween that you get from, like, Party City, that it's trash. And you're like, I know that's not real.
0: And by, like, the second act of the play, it's, like, sideways on their face, yep. <laughs> facing vertically, the, yeah. The glue has fallen off. Yeah, it's just taken its a life of its own.
2: So someone snapped a photo of him in that play, and his father loved the image so much that he posted it on the wall of his office, which is really sweet. I feel like I wish that they had had a better relationship. Well, since Oscar was the foremost Broadway lyricists of the time, Sondheim graduated in that direction. In 1946, he and two of his friends composed a sprawling three-act, 20-song, 50-cast-member musical called By George. It was a big undertaking. (laughs) It was called By George, a chronicle campus life at at the George School, a nearby college preparatory academy that they all attended. Sondheim had lofty expressions when he gave the material to Oscar for review. And he asked for a professional opinion, not one based on personal ties. Oscar did just that. This is the worst thing I have ever read, he told a Crestfall in Sondheim. I didn't say it didn't show talent. It's just terrible. If you want to know why it's terrible, I will tell you. They poured over the libretto for hours, line by line. It was a step-by-step guide to everything I needed to know, Sondheim reported. I have never gotten forgotten a word he said. And you see... It was important enough for him to remember. He doesn't need to remember the fourth grade teacher. He remembers what Oscar told him. About that tutorial, Sondheim told the Paris Review, I probably learned more about writing songs that afternoon than I learned for the rest of my life. He taught me how to structure a song, what a character was, what a scene was. He taught me how to tell a story, how not to tell a story. From then on until the day he died, I showed him everything I wrote and when when it came to notes on lyrics, Oscar felt like he was going to be doing a disservice to the truth if he pretended if he pretended that he never made a mistake when he was writing or writing truly bad lyrics. He wasn't going to be that kind of person. It was like, "I'm perfect, and you should learn everything from me because he wasn't perfect. It wasn't fair to the novice to pretend that he was a successful man starting life perfect. Sondheim learned the importance of choosing every word with meticulous care, while at the same time finding the right balance between saying too little and saying too much. Most poetry, which I could absorb at its own pace, would dent the meaning to be appreciated by the ear alone. Lyrics need to be more repetitious. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. Which looks silly if it's written on the page, but it's absolutely right over a particular melody. Oscar also wrote that it must be understood that the musician is just as much an author as a man who writes the words. Or if you're going in, you know, a theater, it would be, you know, the person who writes the book. He expresses the story in his medium, just as the lyricist expresses the story in his. More accurately, they weld the two crafts, the two kinds of talent together into a single expression. This is the greatest secret of the well-intrigued musical play. Songs should not be inserted in an arbitrary interval, but seamlessly intertwined, so that everything—the dialogue, the melody, and the lyrics—work to further the plot and give it dramatic force. And that was the lesson that Stephen would never forget. And that's a good. That's a good lesson. Is that you all have to work in collaboration to create something beautiful. That's not just sure. a, like I'm not just going to do this on my own. It's you have to work with each other to get something good. When work began on the show. Allegro in the summer of 1947, Oscar suggested that Stephen come onto the set as a glorified office boy for $25 a week. He said it was a seminal influence on my life because it showed me a lot of smart people doing something wrong. Years later in talking it over with the show, Oscar said, I don't think I recognized it at the time, but I was trying to tell the story of my life. It's about a doctor who grows up in a small town and there's an ambitious woman who becomes successful in New York and ends up giving vitamin injections to the wealthiest of people and laying cornerstones of hospitals. His wife is cheating on him and he's disillusioned, but a loving nurse persuades him to go back to the country and be a doctor with a capital D. Oscar's metaphor for what happened to him became so successful with the result of Oklahoma and Carousel that he was all of a sudden in demand all over the place. And unfortunately, Allegro was a failure, but a lot of people said that it was ahead of its time. Sondheim detested his mother, and that's a hard turn, I know. But, you know, you go from someone like Oscar who is teaching him valuable lessons, which it will, which will be carried through the rest of his life. This is his mentor. This is his father figure. He doesn't get to spend time with his real dad. and His mom detests him. And so, yeah, it's black and white and it's a hard turn. And he detested his mom, who was said to be psychologically abusive. And I'm going to say this. I feel icky saying it, but it's almost like the reverse Oedipus. <clears throat> you know, you, you know what i you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. He said, when my father left her, she substituted me for him, and she used me in the way she used him. She used to come on to and berate and beat up on. You see, what she did for five years was treat me like dirt, but came on to me at the same time. She once. Wrote in a letter saying the only regret that she ever had was giving birth to me. Yikes! Steve left his mother and moved in with his father. Thank God. During his, I was going to
4: say, like, then she got custody.
2: Well, remember the reason wow. why was because it was the nineteen forties and Alicia was considered an immoral woman. If it hadn't oh, been for that little so fact,
4: the, no, so not the one who, so the one who uh, got around a little, not the one who told their kids she wished they'd not been born.
2: That's yeah. the immoral
4: one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yep. <laughs> -hmm. Good. Gotcha.
2: Yep. They weren't exactly sex positive like we are now back in the 40s. So, but uh, luckily, he actually got to move in with his father during his freshman year at Williams College. And, uh, and that just, you know, just as a little refresher, that was the year that the divorce became finalized and he was 16. So, you know, he's probably already like, doing Sudoku puzzles or figuring out cold fusion or whatever. Okay, so the thing is, when he moved in with his dad, Herbert had an apartment at 110, 110 Fifth Avenue, which is opposite the Metropolitan Museum of Modern Art. And it was this beautiful three bedroom with a few of the servants rooms behind the kitchen, which is the style of the old New York apartment plans. But Herbert actually couldn't offer his oldest son a room of his own. So he slept on a sleeper sofa in the dining room for several years. But he didn't really seem to mind it, although his friends seemed to care more about it than he did. I feel like I wrote this down. So if I wrote it down somewhere else, I'll just cut this part out. But the reason why he couldn't, he didn't have a room was because Alicia and Herbert had two kids and her mom was living with them. So the three bedrooms were completely full. So he started to attend Williams College in the autumn of 1946, and if you're saying that math doesn't work out, you're right, because remember, he skipped two grades, making him eligible for the freshman class at the age of 16. It was an all-male institution, and it was ranked just below the Ivy League schools of Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, and it was exclusive, and it was sought after. It was named after Ephron Williams, who was rewarded with his service in the Revolutionary War by being given this land, which was on the northwest corner of Massachusetts. When Stephen arrived there, they had just built a new theater. Stephen said that he wanted to get out of Pennsylvania and he wanted a small college. He was attracted by Williams Theater and was undeterred by the lack of a strong music department because in his words, he said, I don't care about music. Ugh. He enrolled <laughs> as an English major taking music as an elective. If you didn't care about music, why did you take it as an elective? Damn it, Steven. just say you're a musician. A friend of his, Steve Birmingham, remembers that Stephen was one of the first people that he met when he was rushing a fraternity that first week. Uh, he fell a step behind him and he said, we both have the same name. And because of that, they became friends. <laughs> they called them the two Steves. His friend Anderson was surprised to find out that Steve had joined a fraternity because at the time fraternity houses did not pledge Jews. God no. There must have been some sort of okay, I, I wrote this word down, I looked it up. It means being opaque obfuscation 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 this is a quote, I wouldn't say obfuscation, obfuscation. Of friggin A there must have been some problem or whatever.
4: I am
2: <laughs> words are hard there must have been some sort of obstification of the fact that Stephen was Jewish because I had a roommate who was Jewish who, unlike myself, was very sociable and had been told by one of the fraternity houses that we love you. You can come over anytime you want. You can spend as much time as you like here. Regard yourself as a member, but we cannot pledge you. It was very explicit. So you have to remember that this is 1946. We're only like a year and a half removed from the horrors of the Holocaust. Mm. So, Steve Sondheim applied to the Beta Theta Pi, which was the oldest college fraternity west of the Allegheny Mountains, founded in 1839. They were known as the singing fraternity. Their motto was being, when two Betas get together, they talk. If three, they sing. Stephen was blackballed twice, but the objections were overridden. In his words, it was the only anti-Semitism I ever encountered. That was what I was talking about at the beginning, was he he only encountered that one point of anti-Semitism that he could remember. What made Williams College unique was that it had emphasis on the music department placing importance on performance, but the fact that they were required to make music, not just teach it. So Sondheim immediately began to compose what he vaguely remembers being his earliest work called the Oscar Hacker Suite, which he wrote in early 1947. So the great thing about the music department at Williams College was that the lighting board was actually in the orchestra pit, so you could light the show and change the lightings as you watched it, as opposed to most theaters, which had the lighting board in the wings, where you could not see what was happening. And then it had an iron curtain off the stage, which was a soundproofed shop so you could actually build new scenery or make repairs while the show was
0: going on. Interesting.
2: (laughs) But see, what's interesting to me is that for some reason, I've always placed the lighting board all the way at the back of the theaters. And I'm wondering if that's not correct, if that's just the soundboard, or if they still keep it in the wings and I've just never, I've never had access to see it.
3: Hmm.
2: Write us in, let us know. We're on socials. I'll give it out. It should be stated at this time that Stephen did not have a very high opinion of a one David Bryant, who had been hired to supervise the drama program, finding him pompous. His words, not mine. However, when Stephen proposed a college musical and was rebuffed on the grounds that there weren't funds, it's entirely likely that Bram was the one that helped smooth the way all the way up the ranks because he sa- it's said that he has fought for the musical all the way up to the head of the university. The powers that be finally relented, and Finney's Rainbow, which was a play on the name Finnian's Rainbow, was given four performances in the spring of 1948. Now, after the subsequent performances, there was a poll which showed that it had been seen by over half the student body. More importantly, it had made a profit of, and this is ridiculous, $1,500. In 1940? Which in today's money is $18,061. It's not bad. <laughs> yeah, and no, It was like a play on a play. So the show basically financed the rest of the entire theatrical season at school. Uh, Stephen had written over 20 musical numbers for the show, and three of them were subsequently published in the Broadway Music Inc. BMI of New York. Like, do you know, do you know, how, <laughs> you know how insane that is? This kid does a... But, a, a like, basically a parody play, basically. And, and Broadway's like, throw it into the catalog. No, like, dude, seriously. That just shows what kind of talent this kid had. And the song... How Do I Know That I Love You is an early parody of Irving Berlin's many songs that posed a question, as well as he entered into a kind of musical ambivalence, which Sondheim as a lyricist will excel at. So because of the success of that show, they somehow dragged in what I can only assume is like... A recorder the size of our house to get this recording. So I'm gonna play this with the proviso that guys, it literally sounds like it was it was played on a potato. So I'm gonna play it. just know that the sound quality isn't that great, but it is the best recording that I have been able to get for the show. So here we go. it's Finian's Rainbow. How do I know? <laughs>
3: My problems are giving me suggestions They can't be answered in only one word Why do I love you? That's the good question That's the best question that I ever heard With questions of so love, I simply into but if you really want a good one, here's a guess. How do I know that I know what I know when I really don't know you? How can I ever what my heart tells me? Why do I do what I feel just the way I always feel. When my feelings will never show. You said goodbye when I said hello. And I asked you when, and you said I would know. What how do I know?
2: I mean, I know it sounds like it was sung in a shower six rooms over, but what do you think about it?
0: Well, it's interesting that, I mean, the quality is obviously not what we'd hope for, but listening to the lyrics and the musical composition, it's interesting how in line it is with what was it that, like you said, Rodgers and Hammerstein, Cole Porter, you know, who was big at that time and just it's, knowing what's that?
2: It's very funny that you mentioned Cole Porter because we're going to touch on him on the next episode.
0: Oh, nice. It's interesting how we knowing where Sondheim goes and lyrically how much he's going to depart from that. It's really fascinating, I think.
2: Yeah, TJ, what's your thought?
0: I thought that it
4: sounded like a uh, cat sitting on a furnace in a hallway three houses over.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I I will say it was really, we, it was
4: really, it was really hard for me to hear. To be perfectly honest with you,
2: it's fine. It will get the 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 quality of the music will get better, and uh, so will the lyrics and the tone. <laughs> but I, <laughs> like,
4: that's what it sounded like,
2: like sometimes in the room. Uh, <laughs> so just to kind of wrap this episode up, a funny story about why that song came about was because uh, they were in a dress rehearsal for the show, and it was the night before opening night and there was a scene change where it became absolutely apparent that the redressing of the stage was going to take way too long and the auditorium was going to be black for as long as a minute and you know in theater that is death you mm-hmm. want to get that in and out in like less than 20 seconds and speed is important so something had to be done so steven suggested that he write a song and then have it as a solo in front of the curtain so that the director agreed and they took a break and uh, Stephen returned within the hour with a brand new song, and he that wrote became, it in an hour He wrote it in an hour. <laughs> and that became the highlight of the show. If you can hear on the track, you can actually hear people laughing mm-hmm. because it's a parody of the Irving Berlin song. So people understood that it was parody, and that's why it was funny. So you can actually hear people on the track laughing. So, um, and during this time, he continued his mentorship with Oscar in the interim. He designed a course for Sondheim on constructing a musical. He had the young composer write four musicals with each of the following conditions. Number one, the first work should be based on a play that he admired. Stephen chose George F. Kaufman and Mark Connolly's Beggar on Horseback, which became All That Glitters. Number two, One based on a play that he liked, but he thought that was flawed. So Stephen chose Maxwell Anderson's High Thor. Uh, Another one, which was based on an existing novel or short story not previously dramatized, which became his unfinished version of Mary Poppins titled Bad Tuesday, which was completely unrelated to the musical and the stage production which would eventually be scored by the Sherman Brothers, and then original, which became Climb High. None of the assignment musicals were ever produced professionally. High Thor and Mary Poppins had never been produced, and the right holders for the original High Thor refused permission, although a musical version by Arthur Schwartz was produced for TV in 1956, and then Mary Poppins remained unfinished. Unlike this episode, which we are going to wrap up there, Uh, Do you guys have any thoughts so far? I know this is more of a, uh, this is less of a music lesson and a bridge building episode. So uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts.
0: So it's interesting how, and you're going to like this reference LD, when you look at tick, tick, boom, how Jonathan Larson has sometimes one of his biggest influences. And one of the things that keeps coming up is how frustrated he is that he can't do what he wants to do. And, I think when you look at something like Sondheim, that frustration is inherent in the art. I think when you see a lot of artists, they have to know what's going on around them and be a little bit frustrated by it and thus strive to change it. So when we see Sondheim get into his works he's most well known for, I think we are going to see a departure from what is very conventional theater at that point. You know, like you said, there's Stephen Schwartz, there's you know Rodgers and Hammerstein, there's Cole Porter, and then you know, Sondheim is going to go in a different direction. I think he's got that kind of fire of here's what's going on and I want to do something different. And I think that was also very prevalent for Jonathan Larson.
2: I think, you know, when we get to the end, because that's that's where Jonathan kind of comes in. And uh, if you listened to our, our In Memoriam episode, you will know that I did call an audible and I will no longer be doing Jonathan Larson. I will be doing meatloaf. But uh, Jonathan Larson is a massive... Inspiration for me. I think my brother will probably tell you when I turned 16, I became a massive Rent head, and that was my 16th birthday gift was a trip to New York to go see the original Broadway cast of Rent, and for me, that started something special. So to know that, like that, th- there is a beautiful line of not delineation, but there's this line of secession that you can see where it's you can see someone like Lin Manuel Miranda who leaned on Jonathan Larson, who leaned on Stephen Sondheim, who leaned on Oscar Hammerstein. Hammerstein, um, You can see that. And there are all these different kinds of game changers because they're all people that shook up the norms of the Broadway scene. And so I just love that it's like, if you talk about Jonathan Larson, then you talk about his, his well, if you talk about Lin-Manuel Miranda, you talk about his dad, Jonathan Larson, then you talk about his dad, Stephen Sondheim, you talk about his dad, Oscar Hammerstein. It's just these this beautiful relationship that they all have. They just pass this like little bit of a rebel streak in them.
0: Yeah, and the portrayal of Stephen Sondheim in Tick, Tick, Boom by Bradley Whitford is just, it's frightening. It's and also, really
2: frightening. I guess I'll say this now because it's a fun fact, which I'll probably okay. bring up later. Uh, Stephen actually, if you watch Tick, Tick, Boom, Stephen actually recorded the message that Jonathan hears oh, on his answer that is not Brad Wilkwerfer. That's actually Steven Sondheim <laughs> on the on the answering machine, which is the last thing he did before he passed.
0: But still, Brad Woodford is amazing in that. Point. He's so good.
2: Yeah, he's oh great. my god, he's even got the eyes down, which mm-hmm. is crazy. Um, but yeah, uh, Travis, well, what's your what's your world like right now? Do you have actual yeah. thoughts?
4: <laughs> Other than this, seems to be a very common theme amongst uh, people who end up being creative. Titans it's some early life strife problems with parents family issues uh, abuse of some kind I mean sometimes it's I mean it, it, you didn't indicate that she hit him or anything but when you tell your kids I wish you were never born I mean thats certainly you've certainly veered into emotional abuse of some kind but yeah. th- that ends up being the the, the fuel for a, a fantastic creative fire later on you know it's like they, they're able to ch- and maybe it's just they channel that or it's that's their escape and they just it's something they become really good at or whatever i don't know but yeah i mean that's it's a very common start for for people like steven
2: yeah agree so um that is that's it that's the episode for the week uh next week we will be back with part two of steven sondheim uh where we'll actually talk about cole porter because he was uh th- they do have a run-in with each other and just basically merrily we roll along i was trying to hope to do this in 30 30 30 like 30 years of his life we made it up to 19 so uh i think we're more than are we're, we're moving pretty good we're doing pretty good i think i'm looking at maybe a 30 to 40 episodes on Stephen Sondheim. So we're doing fine. Hmm. Um, (laughs) If you are interested in helping out this show, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can check us out at Twitter at rock and roll LT. We don't post there. So why bother Instagram rock and roll heaven LT. You can check out our Facebook at rock and roll heaven pod. Still not saying our website. You can check out our TikTok as well at rock and roll heaven pod. And that's all one word. You can also email us at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. And please make sure to also check out all the other awesome Pantheon podcast, pantheonpodcast.com. Um, all right, guys. So that's it. We'll see you next week. And uh, TJ, do you have anything you'd like to say to the audience?
0: Everybody. All right, Mr. Will the Thrill. Uh, This is going to be fun. I think it was largely spurred by our recent New York trip that LD and I took, saw a lot of theater, and we're immersed in that creative environment, and it's going to be fun to explore one of the greatest personalities in theater, and uh, I think it's going to be an interesting, you know, little sidestep for a show that mostly covers rock musicians, because, you know, I I think there's some awesome music coming up, and it's going to be in a different genre, so it's going to be fun.
2: Yep, I can't wait. Uh, Honestly, I can't wait till we get to uh, Into the Woods and I can't wait to get to Sweeney Todd and, you know, at least one song from Company and uh, all the other amazing stuff that he did. So where we're going to end today is going to be a song that I've luckily looked out found online from one of the original, the the original musical that Oscar tasked Stephen with creating. And that was the one that was called Climb High. So this is a song from Climb High, actually sung by Steven Sondheim called Where Do I Belong? See you guys next week. Be safe, and we love you all.
3: To accept to belong. The old question, the old song. Home sweet home. Home days. Wish I